Hello and welcome back to this week's IPV and me. Hope it's been a great week for you all. Um, last week's episode uh, had a really great response to it, which was fantastic. Uh, it was a lot for me last week, so I had to take a few hours to ground myself afterwards, but I actually found it really therapeutic at the same time and feel like I have almost a weight off, I guess. I feel like the more I've been opening up here, the more I realize there's a lot that I still haven't fully dealt with. Um, but it's been helping so much with that. You know, sometimes it just takes saying things out loud, I think. Uh, so what have I been up to since last week's episode? Uh, well, on Friday, it was super hot out. Um, I kind of was in the mood. I just wanted to get out of the house for a few hours. So I ended up going to Bryan Park, uh, just sitting there for an hour with a coffee. I love Bryan Park. It's one of my favorite parts of the city. Uh, it's a great spot to just sit and relax and people watch, which I love to do. Um, then I went to my favorite bookstore, um, Book Off. It's on 45th between 5th and 6th Avenue. I used to go there all the time, but I haven't been there since before the pandemic. So I got so many books. I must have been in there for like an hour and a half. I literally looked at every single shelf of books and I found a bunch of gems that I've had on my to be read list forever and they were all a dollar each um I think I spent like 13 14 dollars in total I got so many books it was great um I have a book blog and I'm lucky enough to get sent advanced reader copies from publishers um I have probably about 10 of them right now which I need to get through so you think that that would stop me from buying more books but nope can never have too many books in my opinion um i'm kind of running out of space in my bookshelves now so i need to get some more um as for tv this week um i've been continuing with my rewatch of the sopranos and i'm also rewatching friends for the gazillionth time um i heard really sad news the other day that um the actor who plays gunther has stage four cancer which is just so sad he um was such a big part of that show and just such a funny background character i used to love watching him in the background of scenes he's so funny um so i wish him all the best um there was also a new episode of I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO. I've told you previously that I watched that pretty recently. Uh, it was a follow-up episode of basically all that's happened in the last year since he's been convicted, caught up with the victims who survived, uh, showed clips of the court case and some of their impact statements, which is really powerful. Um, what I found really fascinating about Golden State Killer was, you know, since he's been caught, he's every time we see him, he just looks so frail and he's in a wheelchair and he's like acting like you know he's completely out of it basically like his mouth's hanging open and he just looks like he's like mentally unwell you know just looks like he's he's dying basically and I just was so skeptical of it because I've seen that so many times if you're a true crime fan like me you will have seen that um in a lot of uh murderers etc um but what was really fascinating was you know it was showing him like that and then to contrast that it showed clips of him in his cell and he is climbing on top of the table he's climbing on top of the bed absolutely no problem he's walking around he's standing up straight nothing wrong with him 
And what was really eerie to me was that if you know anything about the Golden State Killer, uh, one of his um, things that he he used to do with every victim um, was, you know, he would when he would bring the uh, female into the living room and he would turn all the lights out, but he would always keep the light on on the TV, but he would cover it with like a sheet or a towel or something like that. So like only a little bit of light came in. Every single victim that survived mentioned that. And what he was doing in his cell was he was climbing up on all these fixtures to actually do the same thing. He was covering all the lighting vents. So I just thought that was really, really interesting. Um, so I found out I go back to work on Monday finally it's been almost a year and a half since I've been working I'm really excited about it actually I um, ended up quitting my job after the pandemic and I just kind of decided to never go back and you know I'd wanted to leave for a while but thought you know what if I go back now I'm gonna end up staying here again for a few years and I don't want to and I just after quitting you know naturally you're a bit scared when you leave your job but I actually ended up getting my dream job um I got a couple months ago I don't start until next week um I had some of my training already um so it's been good news week for me personally I'm excited about that um unfortunately there was a really really horrific um case of domestic violence in New York and it showed how domestic violence can escalate to the point of a victim losing their life. Um, Maria Kelly, she was a school secretary. She was beaten to death by a crowbar in the middle of the street in the daytime with lots of witnesses around. Her husband, Julio Aponte, screamed, how dare you cheat on me, over and over as he beat her on the head repeatedly. She died four days after her attack. She was only 49 years old. Her son, Emmanuel, 19, said, My mother was always faithful. That was only in his mind. My mother was a wonderful woman. Julio was initially charged with attempted murder, which is likely to be upgraded now that she has passed away. I unfortunately came across this story when I was scrolling through Twitter and a video of the incident autoplayed as I was scrolling. I was completely horrified. You know, this is a real person whose life was lost. And just please, please think hard about ever resharing any of these videos. Like, imagine if that was your family member and you're having to watch that, you know. And it also can be extremely triggering for domestic violence victims. So today's episode, I'm going to focus on leaving an abusive relationship, how hard it is, how dangerous it is, and how it is not as straightforward as it may seem. This is probably my most important episode so far. It's one I'm very, very passionate about. I really want to do it justice and explain it as best as I can. Um, I want to relay as much information as possible. There's so much to be said on the topic, and it's the most important information I think we should all know about domestic abuse. I decided to make it a two-parter because as I was doing my research and going back over my own story I realized that there is just so much to be said that I want to give you two episodes so you can take a break in between and you know really concentrate on what's being said without being too overwhelmed. Uh, So as I've said numerous times before domestic violence does not have a face it can happen to anyone so it goes without saying that people who don't leave are not stupid they're not 
idiots in love. It is simply that there are far more layers to an abusive relationship than outsiders can ever see. You never hear research and statistics about why men abuse. It's always like why women don't leave. Why is this? Why is that? I think it only continues to assume that women are at fault for not leaving and not men for being the abusers. Again, as I've stated before, I refer to abusers as men because firstly, the statistics show that men are more commonly abusers. And two, I was abused by a male, so I can only go by my own story. And it's just natural for me to just say male. Obviously, this is not the case in every single domestic violence case. Um, so I just want to read you uh, a page from this book that I read a few months ago. Uh, it's by the, an Irish writer, Louise O'Neill. You may have heard of her. She's a really popular writer. Um, the book is called After the Silence. A great book. It's um, it's like a mystery thriller book. And there is also a lot of um, domestic violence. And I think she herself does works or does some type of thing with domestic violence um she has a lot of knowledge on it and how it unfolds in the book is really really well done and it's not at all you know dramatized you know just to make the book better but basically um this is just a conversation where um you know someone is explaining why women stay in these relationships and it's probably one of the best explanations I think I've ever read for it it's about it it's one that has kind of stuck with me and I you know took a picture of this page in the book and kept it on my phone because I was like this is something that I need to keep with me because it was I just think it's really powerful and explains it really well so here it goes Don't you think it's interesting that we always ask, why do these women stay? We never think to ask, why are these men violent? Or why won't these men stop terrorizing their partners? I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I want you to put a few things on the table. Your house keys to start, you got that? Now, your car keys. Your wallet containing all the money you have in the world and every one of your credit cards. I want your passport and your driving license too. And last of all, I want the shoes off your feet. We good? From here on out, these items belong to me. You can't touch them again without asking for my permission. Is that clear? Now, tell me, Mr. Wilson, why don't you just leave? So I think that is really, really powerful. Um, You know, I think it's one thing that people don't consider is the fact that like, someone's literally stripped everything away from you and they have control over every aspect of your life so how do you leave how do you leave with just literally nothing you know I think it was a great explanation go and read that book I will leave a link for it in the bio so the most dangerous time in an abusive relationship is leaving because the abuser now has nothing to lose so leaving is never an event it is a process um and again i just want to read some little facts and uh statistics that i read again in 
This book you've heard me mention several times before, No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. So it's just some um, statistics, facts, and just things to know that I thought were really important. So an average of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe. This does not include men or children. I believed all the common assumptions that if things were bad enough, victims would just leave, that restraining orders solved the problem, and that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved, that going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children, that violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence, perhaps most notably mass shootings. The lack of visible injury signalled a lack of seriousness. And perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing at all to do with us. Between 2000 and 2006, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. This figure is likely an underestimate. 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation, and the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. The report called home the most dangerous place for women. The overwhelming majority of victims, about 85%, are still today women and girls. And for every woman killed in the United States from domestic violence homicide, nearly nine are almost killed. Domestic violence health and medical costs top more than eight billion annually for taxpayers and cause victims to lose more than eight million workdays each year. It is a direct cause of homelessness for more than half our homeless women and is overall the third leading cause of homelessness in our country. The overwhelming majority of incarcerated men today first witnessed or experienced violence as children in their own homes and children who grow up in violent homes are at far greater risk for developmental disorders. And those mass shootings that seem to plague us more each new year, most of them too are domestic violence. The advocacy group Every Town for Gun Safety published a report that claimed 54% of mass shootings in America today involved domestic or family violence. So some interesting facts there. Um, I think the statistics are shocking. Um, And, you know, it's just, it's overwhelming really to read that. So people outside of the situation don't see the escalation of the abuse. They assume that an abuser is very obviously going to be an abuser or that the abuse starts from the get-go. They don't see how the victim can go from being a strong person to a scared, empty shell of a person. They're too broken down to see things clearly and even when they do, they're often too exhausted to try and do anything about it. Whether it's the cops or your family and friends, if they see you 
putting up with the abuse and constantly leaving and going back again they'll get frustrated and just leave you to get on with it essentially giving up on you but this is when companionship and understanding are needed the most people need to learn the reasons and patterns and stop their judgments they need to understand what extreme danger the victims are in and how scared they are to leave When victims don't cooperate with the cops when they show up, it's because they're trying to keep themselves safe. They're telling their abuser that they're loyal to them and praying that therefore they will not hurt them when the cops do leave. It sounds so easy to just go to a shelter, but realistically, who wants to do that? You're sharing your living space with other families who have also been through severe trauma. They have strict rules there. Historically, boys over the age of 12 and pets have not been allowed in shelters. Contact with family, friends and employers is discouraged. You're leaving your whole life and disappearing from society. The victim is the one who has to make all of these changes while the abuser just runs free. Also, they are only short-term solutions. It's amazing that they even exist at all, but they are also severely underfunded. So I'm going to read again um, from this book, Crazy Love, uh, probably my favourite book I've read on um, domestic violence um, by Leslie Morgensteiner. You've heard me mention it before. Sorry about that. Um, So the author basically, while she was, this is while she was still in her abusive relationship, um, she went to a professor at a state school um he was working on his phd phd on the psychology of batterers and he had done um a lot of study groups with abusers um so there's a lot of important information here and i'm just going to read the conversation that she had with him in your experience why do men batter women they love Every man I have ever studied who became a batterer as an adult was physically abused as a child by people he loved deeply, usually an intimate family member who was also a role model for acceptable behaviour, often his mother or father or both. A batterer learns as a child that violence is an acceptable way to deal with strong emotions and an effective way to dominate others in order to protect himself. The men I work with cannot separate intimacy from abuse. They do not think that their behavior is wrong and they definitely have no understanding that it is criminal. Do they love the women they are abusing? Absolutely. They hit their partners because they love them, he said confidently. I've yet to come across a batterer who lashes out violently at strangers. Part of the paradigm is that to batterers, violence is a normal component of intimate relationships. The men I've studied would not get any emotional satisfaction or release unless they are intimately involved with the object of their violence. Their vulnerability terrifies and overwhelms them because of their learned behaviour from childhood. They have learned as a survival mechanism that controlling the people they love is the only way to be certain they won't get hurt. And they know through their own personal experience that fear and violence are very effective ways to control people. Do men who beat their partners, their wives, often abuse their children too? Yes, almost always. Again, it is the intimacy and violence paradigm. And even if they don't physically abuse their children, by beating their mothers, they do two things. They terrify their children with the threat of you could be next. And they teach their children that violence against women is okay. 
Both behaviours ensure that violent behaviour is perpetuated in the next generation. What are the positive signs you look for in the men in your group, the signs of hope? Now he took a deep breath. The most important thing, which frankly is rare, is honesty. Admitting that they have hit their partners, that this wasn't the first time, that they've hit other intimate partners, that there is a pattern of abuse that they have initiated. The second thing, also critical, also rare, is taking responsibility for what they did. Saying, this is my problem, not my partner's. Most batterers believe their partners provoke the violence. But for most batterers, this verges on impossible because it requires them to admit that for many years they've been hurting other people whom they love in exactly the same way they were hurt as small children. For most of the men I work with, denial of their problem has become a survival skill. For them to let go of this defence is devastating, but it's critical. You say there is a pattern to the violence that spans different relationships. Could you tell me more about this? Based on my quantitative, excuse me, research and learning from the men's groups I run, my hypothesis is that men who batter are like a subspecies whose behavior as a group is highly predictable. A relationship starts, the batterer has an uncanny sense for what the woman wants and needs emotionally, and he meets that need. I hear female partners use the phrases Prince Charming and Knight in Shining Armour with incredible regularity when they describe what their partners were like in the early courtship stage of the relationship. Batterers are like predators seeking prey. You never hear of a batterer who introduces violence early on or too suddenly. No batterer hits a woman on their first date. He always waits until he's secure, which from the woman's perspective means until she is trapped emotionally or financially, like getting engaged or pregnant or quitting her job because he wants to take care of her. A batterer intuitively knows when and how to lay the groundwork for a successful violent relationship. The best cons, after all, are the ones that make the victim want to participate. Once the relationship is established and the batterer feels secure, he introduces the threat of violence. By a threat, I mean something like punching a wall in the woman's presence or saying, if I weren't such a gentleman, I'd hit you for saying that during an argument. If the woman does not balk at the threat of violence, then soon the batterer actually hits or chokes or shoves her. Usually it's something like a pinch that leaves a bruise or a controlled shove, not a full-blown beating. The batterer gradually escalates the violence and increases the frequency as the woman's denial and emotional numbness increase. By then, she's trapped and he feels free to do whatever he wants. He works on her emotionally too to make sure she does not tell people about the violence. It's critical that he convinces her the violence is somehow her fault or under her control. Her guilt protects the relationship so he can continue the battering. The men you work with in your recovery groups, do they ever get better? Do they ever stop hitting their partners for good? His biggest sigh yet, I could practically see him shaking his head. No one I've studied has ever stopped being violent all at once for an extended period of time. I've seen batterers make a lot of progress toward controlling their anger and expressing it in more productive ways, but I've never seen anyone who didn't regress and beat their partners at regular intervals, even while making significant progress. There is no one I work with who I could say, this one is done, he'll never batter anyone again. Okay, I told him. Last question. If one of the wives or partners of your batterers came to you and said, what should I do? Should I wait for him and help him work it out? What would you tell that woman to do? He gave a short, humorless laugh. I would tell her that she is probably the last person on earth who could help him. 
first she should help herself and her kids if she has them to stay away from him and I'd warn her to be extremely careful because abandoning a batterer often provokes his deadliest rage. But leaving is actually the best way for her to help the batterer too and to help our society because she is letting him and the world know that what he has done is wrong and totally unacceptable. By removing herself from the relationship, she makes it clear that she cannot help him, paving the way for him to realise the violence is his fault, his responsibility, and that he is the only one accountable for his behaviour. So that is some really powerful, interesting stuff to know. Again, fantastic book. I will leave the link once again in the bio. Uh, So much important information in there. So as I said last week, I had a very dramatic incident which caused me to make a plan to leave, um, a plan which never came to fruition. So here is what happened instead. So at this point, I had slowly started to open up to friends and I had even mentioned a couple of things to my mother, but they in no way knew how bad it actually was. I remember the very first time I spoke about it, it was to a girl who had become one of my closest friends in New York. Um, I mentioned one night over dinner how I was tired of his drinking, um, just very vaguely. Uh, she told me I was ridiculous to expect to tell a guy to stop drinking just because I didn't like it. And I just remember I got so angry and snapped at her and I think it was you know in response to like you know she wasn't really getting it but also I wasn't really telling her anything so I shouldn't have been surprised and I just blurted out that it was more than drinking that he was also really nasty to me and she totally got it then I had um you know I guess downplayed it to her before that because I just kind of wanted to test the waters a little bit um she was so great and I continued to open up to her more and more uh we would go for dinner a couple of times a week where we would talk about it she never pushed me she never told me to leave she simply listened and told me that she was there for me and honestly it was the best way anyone could possibly have dealt with it um I know that if she had just told me to leave him I would have just closed up and stopped talking to her Even though I was, you know, telling her what was happening, I was still making excuses for him to her and trying to say things like, oh, but, you know, he still does so much for me. And, you know, but I did this. And, you know, when he's nice to me, he's so great, et cetera, et cetera. I was just completely fooling myself. Um, I know now that she wasn't fooled a bit. She's told me since. um, But, you know, it was great that she just kind of let me talk and just let me go at my own pace. Uh, so the more that I started opening up to people, the more I knew I was done. It was like I couldn't wait to tell people about it. I even told some people at work who I was close to. Um, that's when I knew I was finally seeing things clearly. And I knew that he knew things were changing also. When I had started working, he you know, was starting to lose a hold on me things were changing I was more confident and he needed to be more careful and he knew it so not long after the incident with me fantasizing about killing him which I mentioned last week I finally flew home to Ireland for the first time in four years I was so excited Um, I had booked my flight a few months before and um, I had been able to 
pay it off weekly for a few months and one day after a particularly bad night of him being abusive to me he um ended up paying off the rest of my flight uh another example of him knowing he had to be more careful now and try and butter me up uh i was going without him so i was completely free for two whole weeks i had the most amazing time um i'd missed everyone so much when you move abroad um coming home is like indescribable i go home once a year now and honestly i still have the same level of excitement every time i love going to the airport let me tell you there is nothing to me like landing in ireland when i get the first view of the mountains and the fields and the countryside for miles um there's always this beautiful sunrise uh i always see when i'm walking from the plane to the airport um and the guy at passport check uh such an irish thing but you know he'll take my passport and they always say welcome home and i oh i just get chills just thinking about it i just love it um so being at home gave me even more clarity as to what was going on with me i had space to think clearly uh i barely spoke to my abuser while i was there he called a couple of times but i'd rarely answer and just say that i was out visiting people uh towards the end of my trip he called really angry one night because he found out that i hadn't gone to visit his parents um he told me that um that act had told him that something was wrong in our relationship that that thing he said that I had changed and that we needed to discuss our relationship when I got back uh so I had intended to visit his parents but I just couldn't bring myself to do it I couldn't bring myself to be fake with him uh, I was never a fan of his dad I did really really like his mom and I felt bad for not seeing her but I also kind of just didn't care um so instead I just gave them a quick phone call and told them I just hadn't had time um his mom was super understanding about it you know they had emigrated you know for years and and understood that you know those little visits home are precious and you just don't always get time to see everybody um so a few months before I had gone to Ireland he had made a trip home uh, for a wedding and while I was in Ireland I found out that he had told some people that I was on drugs that I was staying out all night that I was using him for a visa that I completely changed Uh, none of this really surprised me so when I got back to New York two weeks later I was jet lagged exhausted homesick um I was getting home from work and just going straight to bed and watching tv I was basically doing anything I could to not be in his presence I was truly disgusted by him at this point and you know he found this really strange he obviously knew something was up um so after that he informed me that our landlord had given us notice to move out um, because he wanted to so the whole building was divided into four apartments and then the basement apartment was where the landlord and his family lived and he basically wanted to extend his apartment and kind of move up into the building a little bit so he decided he was going to take our apartment I think that he picked ours because he just wanted us gone obviously I don't even remember at this point if you know he had ended up paying back the rent or whatever I'm sure he probably didn't so I think he probably just wanted us out um you know he had already started looking at um 
apartments while I was gone and you know whenever he made an appointment to view an apartment I you know always claimed I was unavailable working or whatever because I knew without a doubt that I would not be moving in to this other apartment uh, so he was also having trouble getting an apartment because his credit score was so bad which he didn't think that I knew this is when he realized that I had a very high credit score and he said that we would have to use mine to get an apartment. I knew as soon as I told him what my score was that I shouldn't have told him, but I also knew it was never going to happen. So I just kind of brushed it aside. So I'd started going to parties every weekend, various apartments of people that I worked with. Um, one particular night, I stayed out all night. I got home at like 9 a.m. or something the next day, um, just as he was about to leave for work. I had texted him the night before and told him I was staying at the friend's place where I was, which I was. It was all very innocent. I never cheated on him, even though I had opportunities to, but I just never wanted any reason that he could blame me for something. Uh, he was fine the night before about it but when I got home that morning he was so angry at me for staying out even though I had told him and he had done it so many times before and every time he did it he never even told me that he was staying out or night or even offered up an explanation the next day I could never win um he thought when I came back that I was just going to sit there and apologize to him but instead I remember so clearly I I don't know why I'd, I just decided to settle on the couch instead of going to bed, but I sat on the couch to have a nap and I literally hysterically laughed while he was yelling at me. I just couldn't, it's like something just overtook me. I just thought like he looked so ridiculous when he was yelling at me and he was being such a hypocrite and I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. I just remember like, you know when you just laugh so hard that like you have tears come down your eyes you get like those pains in your side like I was laughing so hard um and he was just looking at me like I was out of my mind uh looking back now on that I kind of get chills a little bit because I realized how bad that actually could have turned out um you know I, it could have triggered something in him I wasn't aware then of the danger that I was in I think the only reason nothing happened that morning was because he was on his way out the door to work I remember I was on the bus home one morning after an overnight shift at work and he called me as I was almost home and he said that we needed more money for a deposit for the new apartment I'm assuming because we weren't going to get back our deposit on the current apartment we were in. And he told me that because he was always borrowing money from his parents that I now had to ask my family for money who don't have any money in the first place. And even though he had borrowed money from my family over a year ago and had had no intention of paying it back, um, I told him he was out of his mind, but he kept pushing it, getting pissed about it. And then it clicked with me that you know he knew that a family member of mine had just inherited some money recently like he was so clever and just paid attention to everything so he thought he could get himself some of that like truly disgusting so now I'm getting to the start of the 24 hours of me leaving before my plan had played out before I was ready to go before I ever thought that I would go I had absolutely no idea what was about to happen and my life was going to completely change so about a month after I got back from Ireland this would have been late October 
I had just gone home from work. Um, he had just left for his job. It was one of those awful, torrential, rainy, windy nights in New York uh, where you're just dying to get home and just chill out for the night. Um, you know, just really, really dark all day. Like, you know exactly the day I'm talking about. If you're if you're from New York, I've spent any time here um, and you've seen one of those days, you know how it is. Um, he had just found an apartment a few days before uh, I hadn't gone to see it. He'd shown me pictures. It wasn't very nice, but I knew again that I wasn't going to be living there. Um, he told the landlord that he was taking it, but then... So he texted me this night and he said that the landlord wouldn't let us move in until he had met me, which I thought was kind of odd. Like, what does it really matter? Um, he said that the landlord was going to be at this apartment between 9 and 10 p.m. that night and I was to meet him there. I wasn't being asked. I was being told. Um, again, a perfect example of how an abuser has absolutely zero concern for your safety. Um you know, not only only was the weather terrible, the apartment was located on a street which was known for um, a lot of like alcoholics, homeless people hanging out. Like, I'm not trying to paint, you know, these people with the same brush, um, but I knew this particular group of people were, they were like known in the area to like rob people and had even seriously hurt some people. So it kind of had a bit of a bad reputation. And, you know, he wanted me to just go there and meet some random guy who I didn't know in an apartment. Like to anybody else, that would be an absolutely insanely dangerous request to make. But he didn't, probably didn't even realize, but probably just didn't even care anyway. So I told him this straight out, but again, he got angry. He called me, yelled at me to go. Um, you know, we had this massive fight in the phone and I told him that I was going to go just to shut him up. Complete lie. And then for the rest of the night, I just ignored all his calls, all of his texts. Um, the texts are getting more and more threatening as the night went on, but I just didn't care. I just didn't care. So the next morning I was off work the next day and I remember I had been looking forward to this day off for some reason. I know I was just having a long week or whatever it was. Um, so I wake up, it's 9am. Um, I remember checking the time straight away because when I woke up, all I could hear was banging on the front door of the building. So not the apartment door, but the the front door of the actual building um then he came around to the bedroom window which was on the ground floor facing the street and he was banging on the bedroom window then he went back to the front door and it was going back and forth back and forth um then he's standing in the front yard which is directly on the street there's like our bedroom window a little bit of grass and then you're in the street and he starts drunkenly yelling about how all women are bitches etc 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 um then after however long he realizes that i'm not gonna let him in um but the there's this old man who lived upstairs really really sweet guy and he let him in the front door of the building so then now he's outside the apartment door so he starts banging 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 on the apartment door i continue to ignore him eventually he gives up banging on the door and he finally uses his keys this was a continuous um 
pattern that he did every time he was out he was just to you know he wanted to make sure that I was awake and I was up so that he had an excuse to like scream at me um something that just happened all the time so he starts trying to argue with me I'm just ignoring him um I'm like walking around just like getting dressed and brushing my teeth etc making breakfast um he starts talking about how I never went to see his parents while I was in Ireland um at this point I've uh, already started to record this whole thing um you know it's something I had done a few times previously but there was something about this particular morning that told me things were going to get bad so it was just like my instincts were telling me just to have evidence of it so I started off with the phone in my hand and then eventually I remember putting it on the kitchen table uh, it was still recording and I just continued on with my morning getting dressed all the rest of it while he was following me around screaming at me so I'm in the bedroom and he says that his final straw with me was me not going to see his parents so now he's leaving me so I just I don't know what took over me but I went to the apartment door I opened it and I just said bye like really sarcastically um, I can tell my by, by my voice on the video that I've just had enough. I just don't care. Every ounce of me that cared before is just gone. And of course, he loves this because now he has something to go off of. So he starts taunting me again about how I don't have money, his favorite topic. Um, I tell him who is he to brag when he hasn't paid his rent for three months then he starts bragging that he has uh four hundred thousand dollars in his bank account complete and utter lie as usual and then oh this is when i just lose it um him bragging about money just makes me think of how he owes my family money and everything just hit me you know when people say you see red when you're angry I literally remember seeing red it was like I had tunnel vision and everything surrounding the tunnel was red instead of black and I could just see him at the end of the tunnel it was like that's all my focus was just on his face um when I listen to the video now and I just watched it again before I started recording this uh episode my voice on the video is completely unrecognizable it reached a pitch that I don't even think Mariah Carey has ever hit this pitch before it was like a demon had taken over my body and I remember I felt like I was stronger than any bodybuilder could be like I still remember the feeling so well I remember very little of what happened only for the video I think some things are memory and then some things I just know because of the video and I've watched it several times at this point over the years um so I remember I picked up his macbook and I threw it against the wall he's sitting on the couch and this is like all in front of him um threw it against the wall then I picked up his shoe and I hit him across the face with it really hard I threw a small table across the room and then I scream in his face and I walk away. Um, I can see, you know, right away he's loving it. I just remember him having this smirk on his face. Like he was so excited, like so happy, so gleeful that I was now attacking him because now he had an excuse to throw something back at me. So he follows me into the bedroom saying, you know, because in my head I was just done now. I was just, I, that's the argument done. Like I'm not 
playing these games anymore so he follows me into the bedroom and he says oh we're playing these games now are we and he proceeds to throw everything I own around the room and this just makes me even worse so I scream at him to get away from my things to get away from me um I follow him to the living room but he blocks the door um I remember him standing it's one of the things that I actually do recall is him standing t- up to his full height in the doorway and he just was like really rigid and looking down at me and just smirking and I remember at this point starting to panic um and I was trying to push him really hard just to let me leave but he just didn't bunch budge I was screaming at him to let me out I just really wanted to get fresh air really badly and he just would not get out of my way and he was just enjoying it so much um so then out of nowhere he lets me go past him and I'm about to go to the front door and he just gets I could see like the mood changes and he gets like extremely angry it's like okay I'm done now like this is not fun for me anymore so he grabs my uh upper arms like below my shoulders and he dragged me right across the room and held me against the wall I don't even know how long I was there maybe like 30 seconds maybe a minute I don't even know um and then he says okay then let's call the cops so I'm still screaming at him to leave and just get away from me I'm screaming over and over again how dare you how dare you how dare you I just keep screaming that in this like crazy voice it's like the freaking exorcist or something um and you know I wasn't by saying I how dare you I wasn't just speaking about you know this one morning but it was like all the mornings and all the evenings and all the afternoons and all the nights when I had to put up with his abuse I tell him not to ever put his hands on me again when I hear his voice on the video it's an anger I have never heard in him before I think he was enjoying seeing me in that state but uh it also just got to the point where his anger kind of took over and he was enraged that I was fighting back it was kind of like a oh who do you think you are fighting back with me um you know I'm really relieved now that it didn't escalate further and I believe that it would have um you know which is scary to think about but that's just the reality of it thankfully that's not what happened uh so he keeps saying he's going to call the cops on me because I just smacked the shit out of him and what's wrong with me and I tell him he's what's wrong with me um I really was thinking him calling them was a threat because like why would you bother you know um a while after this incident I was you know filling my mom in on what happened that morning and the stuff with the cops and he she told me that um so when my brother had been visiting us a couple of years previously they had gone to this uh game together and they for whatever reason had an argument outside the stadium and he had actually called the cops on my brother which I didn't know I couldn't believe it um if I'd known at the time that or I had known at the time that they argued but you know at the time he told me that oh a cop just happened to walk by while we were arguing and he um just called him over to calm my brother down whatever complete not her lie um but he actually had literally called the cops on my brother just because they were having an argument like if I just I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe that they had never told me that either um so you know clearly he had a habit of manipulating cops as well as the people around him and that was about to be very clear 
so at this point I'm hysterically crying just wailing around the place I sound like a wounded animal it actually really hurts me to hear it now because I can recall the feeling and it's like all of the pain from the last few years was just pouring out of me and meanwhile he's in the background calling the cops which I thought was a joke and then out of nowhere again I get another burst of anger and I just completely flip over the kitchen table and I remember that table being extremely heavy because I remember I used to try and move it um and I could never like move it that to where I wanted it because it was so heavy and somehow I actually flipped the whole kitchen table over I don't know how I did it um so he keeps following me around the house from room to room and I'm screaming at him to just leave me alone he starts making fun of my crying and what I'm saying um he says he called the cops on me because I attacked him and I just scream at him to just get away from me um I'm sitting on the bed crying and he just keeps opening the door and telling me the cops are coming for me he just will not leave me alone I remember at this point trying to call a couple of my friends but no one was answering and it was really early in the morning so the cops show up while I'm in the bedroom trying to call my friends and I remember being really shocked that he actually had done that uh, I was listening at the door so there's four male cops and to my surprise they are all laughing and joking with him um, I hear him tell them that I hit him in the face with a shoe and the cop asks him if I want to press charges or if he wants to press charges on me. I just remember being disgusted and feeling like, wow, like now there's five men in my house and they're all just laughing and joking about me. Uh, so I walked into the living room where they were and I remember saying, do you realize that he is extremely drunk right now and is manipulating you all? And one cop rushes over, tells me, no, it's okay, it's okay. And he walks me back into the bedroom where I'm sitting on the bed and he kneels in front of me and he's just speaking to me like I'm a child. Uh, he asks me if I'm hurt. I say no. He says, my abuser is simply concerned for me that I've been extremely depressed for the last few weeks and he's very worried. Um, the cop asks me if he can take me to hospital where I can speak to someone about how I'm feeling. I just remember my blood turned cold when I realized that my abuser had tried to make them think that I am extremely depressed and mentally unstable and need to be committed. I was shocked. I found the cop so condescending, so unhelpful that I just clammed up. I just answered no to all his questions. I didn't expand on anything. Um, he didn't really ask me much, to be honest. It was more so asking me, you know, if I was okay and if I needed to go to hospital. Um, I tell him I'm fine. I just want them to leave. You know, they clearly were of no help to me. I remember kind of being shocked at how they were behaving. Like, what if I was really in trouble? Which I was looking back, you know, would they simply have left me there? Uh, they barely asked me any questions. They never asked me to relay my version of what had happened. Um, they just asked their own basic vague questions and they just simply went by what he had told them. Um, 
when they didn't do anything to him after seeing the state that I was in, it kind of sent a message to me that he was more powerful than the law and they just left. So as soon as they're gone, he comes into the bedroom and he starts taunting me. He tells me, oh, the cops are after you now. They're going to be watching your every move now. Um, at this point, I had gotten through to my friend who lived nearby. Um, she's the one who knew everything about what was going on. Um, she had told me to pack a bag while she was on speakerphone and to come to her house. So he didn't see the phone at first. I had put it somewhere on the bed. Um, so he heard everything. He heard, uh, she heard him taunting me, um, saying all the stuff he was saying. Eventually, he realized that she was on the phone. Suddenly, changed his tone of voice completely out of nowhere just like he did with the cops he became sympathetic to me again he tried to make it sound like he was worried about me exactly what he said to the cops uh, like he was trying to say that I was depressed and he was worried um, that I was going to do something you know thankfully my friend was no fool though uh, later on when I actually left the house he also sent her text right after that to say that he was very worried about my mental health and that I needed help trying to manipulate her like he did everyone so I left the house and he followed me down the street until we got to the end of our street and then he turned back I think that this the reason he turned back is because I was about to turn onto the main street in the neighborhood and he was concerned about what people would think of him just like he always was so I got to my friend's house I fill her in on what happened and she suggested that we go to this Irish immigration center that's by her house um it's where I had filed my original paperwork and my friend knew the immigration counselor there very well she was the same lady that had worked with me a couple of years before that on my green card so she saw us there brought her brought us into her office and she asked me to just explain briefly what had happened at this point, I was very overwhelmed, but I kind of felt relieved too to be opening up. Uh, she brought in a social worker also who listened to me. And, you know, as I spoke to her, you know, she was like asking, oh, does he say this? Does he do this? Et cetera, et cetera. And she kind of also filled in the blanks when I kind of stumbled over my words or couldn't really speak. And I just remember I couldn't believe that someone understood what was happening to me and you know not only that but like they knew what I was trying to say and I was thinking like maybe this situation isn't just unique to me maybe I am being abused maybe none of this is actually my fault um and then what struck me was the uh immigration counselor told me that she remembered me from the fears before and whenever we would meet in her office and she was prepping us for the immigration interview she always was struck by how extremely quiet I was and that you know he did all the talking always even though it was my interview my green card and she remembers she f said she found it very strange and she knew that something wasn't right um so they told me that I needed to file a protection order um, that they could get the cops to get him out of the apartment so that I could live there alone. And they got me an appointment with a domestic violence agency. Um, they said that 
that agency would also help me with my green card and everything else um I just remember it being really hard to take in everything that was happening I was still trying to process the last couple of hours but you know thank god for my friend I remember her looking at me and saying are you okay with all of this like you don't have to do anything you don't want to um it was a very important thing to say it's important not to put pressure on a victim to leave and you know after she does leave also uh, victims aren't always in the mental position to be able to make informed decisions after leaving such as getting protection orders and all the rest of it so I really appreciated that my friend was there to ask these questions that I couldn't um I thought that they knew best so I said it was okay um I'm glad now that I didn't really think too much about it and just did it because I believe that if I had had a clear head and thought about it too much I wouldn't have gone through with it and maybe even have gone back to him um they say that victims will leave up to 10 times before they finally leave for good um I wasn't really thinking about the fact that I was broke that I had nowhere to live and I didn't even have any of my stuff with me I just left so I'm gonna leave it there for this part of the episode I think that was a lot to kind of take in it was definitely a lot for me to get out um you know uh that particular morning obviously is was just horrific for me and you know obviously something really horrific like that but it ended up being great in the long run um and you know the next few months the next few years were not easy at all it's not just a matter of oh you've left now and everything's fine so you know I wanted to make this a part two episode because there's so many more layers and stages to the leaving process so I'm gonna leave it there for now uh once again contact me on at ipvme on all social networks uh, my personal account uh, on instagram is at mandgogs m-a-n-d-g-o-g-g-s if you want to reach out to me there instead um i know a lot of you on here uh listening to me follow me on there already anyways and once again uh please reach out to hotline.org 800 799 safe that's 800 799 thank you again for listening i appreciate all the feedback um you've been great i'm really surprised at how many of you are listening and reaching out to me and i appreciate all the support thank you so much see you next time